Welcome to Voices of Santa Clara. Having a good idea doesn't get you done. And if we'd hit those, there would have been an explosion. We would have died, obviously. Scholarship should cultivate the virtues. Worry more about, am I searching for what I should be doing next in the world? Welcome to the Voices of Santa Clara podcast. I'm your host, Gavin Cosgrave. I'm a sophomore management information systems major at Santa Clara, and I interview a variety of students and professors for fun at Santa Clara to learn more about their life stories, their lessons learned, their research, their cool life experiences. A few quick updates on the podcast. Uh, There are weekly transcripts that show up in the Santa Clara student newspaper, which is called The Santa Clara. And you can find those articles online at thesantaclara.org. Also, last week, Santa Clara President Father Eng mentioned the Thomas Plant interview uh, episode of the Voices of Santa Clara podcast in his speech at the Golden Circle Theater Party, which is the big fancy annual fundraising dinner uh, for Santa Clara University. So I was super excited to uh, to hear that. And speaking of Father Eng, you should keep listening for the next several weeks. Um, and I'll, I'll, I'll leave it at that for now. Um, getting into today's guest, Naomi Andrews is a history professor at Santa Clara. Um, I took a class, Rebellion and Conformity, with her my first year, um, my culture and ideas course for two quarters. It was a discussion-based class. Um, Almost, I'd say 95% of the class was discussion, which was really cool. We read a wide variety of philosophical, political, and literary works, and we had some fascinating discussions about how these historical works related to current issues um, like politics, women's rights, government surveillance, and more generally, how societal forces shape human behavior. Uh, Dr. Andrews got her bachelor's, master's, and PhD from UC Santa Cruz, all in history, and she wrote a book, Socialism's Muse, Gender in the Intellectual Landscape of French Romantic Socialism in 2006. Um, In this episode, we talk about her career plans, um, and the uh, the main area that we cover is how do we have difficult discussions with people who we disagree with. So in our current um, political climate, um, and this happens a lot on campus too, it's tough to talk about um, these issues because we're worried um, about sacrificing friendships and relationships with people because of our differences, but there's a lot of value in hearing the perspectives and the stories of people who have different experiences and may have different views than we do. So I think you'll really enjoy this discussion, and there's a lot of uh, good tips and mindsets you can take away about how to engage in tough conversations about uh, current issues with people you know. So please enjoy. I'm excited to be here today with Dr. Naomi Andrews. Um, So I'd love to start out by actually asking some about um, your childhood and how you got interested in uh in history and what what your life was like growing up oh interesting okay so um i grew up in southern california but i come from a family of academics my grandfather was a psychology professor and my father also was a university person and his family going back for generations actually one of my great-grandfathers was a historian so 
being an academic or a teacher was always kind of something that was respected and you know out there um mm -hmm. and so we argued a lot about ideas mm -hmm. my grandparents were communists in the 1930s so there was a lot of discussion about social justice and equity and how the world should be run differently and then when i got to college i went to uc santa cruz for college mm -hmm. i started taking history classes and I really liked two things about the way I was taught there and that I try to reproduce in my teaching here. One is the focus on um, critically reading and understanding primary sources. So mm -hmm. to look at and whether that's a newspaper article or a novel, you know, you have certain skills about understanding the author's intent, mm -hmm. asking certain kinds of questions. But the historians that taught me in Santa Cruz also were very interested in putting those ideas into context. Mm -hmm. What were the forces that were shaping the world around the people? Mm -hmm. And um, that all really made a lot of sense to me, partly because of my growing up in a family of psychologists. We're always asking those questions also. What are the narratives or themes or problematics of people's um, approaches to life as human beings, not as historical actors? Mm -hmm. So I always think in the back of my head that my psychologist grandfather and father would have really liked the kind of conversations that we have in my classes because we're asking similar kinds of questions. Mm -hmm. What were your uh, career plans when you were in college? I actually applied to and was accepted to law school at the end of college. And I was like probably every other idealistic person who thinks about law school wanted to do constitutional law and fight for civil liberties and all that. But at some point I just realized that I did not want to have the career path that might lead to corporate law, yeah. criminal law, any of those things. And that I was really, what I was most excited by was the kind of history that I had been taught. So mm -hmm. I took a year off and then I applied to graduate school. Mm -hmm. What did you love about Santa Cruz that kept you coming back? Because you did all three. Yeah. So, I mean, that's a life, <laughs> that's a life story thing. And it's actually worth including in here because, mm -hmm. um, I think it's very easy for students who I think are probably your audience here to have the impression that their professors have just gone lockstep, you know, freshmen in college, we knew exactly what we wanted to do and we didn't wander around at all. But I actually started a PhD program in Russian history at Columbia and it was the very end of the Cold War. The, the Berlin Wall came down the year I started and I got there and I thought, I really don't want to do this. It was very political science oriented and geopolitical. And I was much more interested in reading Russian novels and thinking about, you know, how their authors understood social injustice in their world. So I left and I came back here and I was already kind of involved with the man I'm still married to mm -hmm. um, 20, almost 25 years later. So I kind of looked around trying to figure out what to do and how to combine these two parts of my life. And Santa Cruz was starting up their PhD program in history again mm -hmm. and offered me a full scholarship or fellowship mm -hmm. as it's called for graduate study. And so I was able to have the relationship I was in and the work I wanted. Mm -hmm. And then I just got really lucky because most academics move for jobs. And I really couldn't move. I was pretty settled by the time I finished my PhD, had a child here and marriage and all that. Mm -hmm. So I taught here 
and an, an untenured position for seven years mm-hmm. as a, um, a lecturer. Any of your professors are actually lecturers, like mm-hmm. you're probably your CTW teacher, maybe yeah. not, Insta- mm-hmm. instructor was likely a lecturer. Um, so I did that for a number of years and then finally there were, the department was able to run a search to hire a new French historian and I mm-hmm. got the job, so yeah, yeah, it's good. Yeah, so one of the aspects that I liked most about the Rebellion and Conformity class was how um, you were able to lead the class and lead discussions without without lecturing um, and without even talking that much sometimes. Mm-hmm. So what's your, I guess, philosophy on teaching and what, like, what do you try to emphasize in those yeah. discussion environments? Yeah, that's an ideal circumstance to have mm-hmm. a group of students who have read the same text and are... In our class, we were, of course, always building on past conversations, what I call chain stitching, right? Mm-hmm. Like the texts never disappear. Don't think just because you're sick that you cannot do the reading because you will be, <laughs> you're going to miss mm-hmm. this really important um, link in our intellectual um, yeah, chain. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, my feeling is that um, our job in history classes, especially in classes that are all primary source dependent, which is how that class is structured, is not to judge the people who wrote the texts in the past, but to try to understand what they could imagine for their world. Um, What were the limits of um, understanding that were available Mm -hmm. to them? And how do we see them exploring those limits? And when we do that, as historians, we learn something about the historical past what was imaginable, what was legitimate, what was beyond the pale of contemplation. Mm-hmm. Um, so when when I'm teaching, I really pref- I my goal is to guide students to like butt up against those limits and to mm-hmm. see. Well, no, actually, the author, oh, let's say Voltaire, mm-hmm. when Voltaire talks about how poorly women are t- treated in um, in Candide. Students are often frustrated that um, you know that that there's a there's no call for women's emancipation or social equality. There's mm-hmm. just a lot of lamentation of how they're seen as sexual objects. Mm-hmm. And so, in our conversations, we at first identify that that's uh, um, from our modern perspective a shortcoming. But then we mm-hmm. have to ask, well, why? What what was possible to imagine at the time? Mm-hmm. It tells us something about how the society operated. Hmm. Do you think that? Like discussion format, would you use that if you were teaching a different subject, maybe, or would you would you t- lecture more? I do. Well, I do lecture more in other classes, mm-hmm. but I but that basic goal of helping students understand, and also for myself, understanding mm-hmm. better the historical past by discussing primary sources mm-hmm. pertains. So when I teach a modern French history class. Mm-hmm. We read a couple of different novels, and the novels tell us something interesting and important about the world mm-hmm. that we're trying to re-envision. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I will do more lecturing and more framing, mm-hmm. but I'm not real keen on, you know, facts and narrative for mm-hmm. the sake of narrative. Mm-hmm. It's really to be able to understand the social world. Yeah. Fully. And that that class last year was right during... Um, the election cycle and so uh, topics of, of, of politics and uh, difficult things that people disagreed about often 
um, kind of came up in class. So how have you seen those discussions come up in your classes and how do you yeah. try to handle them? It's really interesting. Um, this The last couple of years have been very a learning experience for me and um, about how to make students comfortable but uncomfortable at the same time. And, and of course, we're generally speaking, this is a pretty liberal campus, but there was at least one student I know of from our class who was raised in a family that was, you know, Trump supporting family and he or she was distressed by the tone on campus. And it's, of course, my responsibility to make sure that student feels comfortable and safe mm -hmm. in conversation as well. So I have been thinking about that a lot. And one of the I'm going to answer your question about how I approach it in a second. But I do want to make an observation, which is that student. I feel like in the last couple of years, students are increasingly polite in the classroom. And I think some of it is a hesitation about really having real confrontations, really uncomfortable discussions. Um, and I think we need to be working to try to overcome that. Um, so some of the things that I try to, to do to create greater comfort, mm -hmm. not comfort exactly, mm -hmm. I don't want people to feel like, Oh, everyone agrees with me because mm -hmm. it's not true. Even if they might be the same of the, in the same camp politically, we don't all agree, and we don't need to agree. And and in fact, exposing our disagreements is a very productive way to learn something about our own assumptions and all of that. So, I've been trying really hard to encourage students to articulate their own positions. And sometimes, one of the things that's great about teaching history is you can kind of displace the conflict a little bit. Okay, we can move the discussion to another historical moment mm -hmm. and um, people relax a little bit mm -hmm. uh, when you're not really making an argument or having a discussion about how your parents voted or how you voted or you should vote or your friend mm -hmm. voted, but rather how did the issues of liberty and equality get debated and mm -hmm. articulated in past times? And students will often have very strong opinions about mm -hmm. that. Um and actually, an example, last week, I don't know if you remember the the Soviet novel We that we read mm -hmm. in that class, mm -hmm. which is, of course, a society that is highly surveilled. Everyone is being watched at all times. It's a completely transparent crystal palace of a city. And we have started in the second quarter trying to do more to get debate going and to get conflict mm -hmm. going with a very polite, lovely smart, engaged, but polite group of students. And I do think some of it is this sense that um, our political differences are so huge that it's scary to, to have, bring them out into the open. Mm -hmm. So we, we, we had a spectrum exercise about the question of how much um, of surveillance is legitimate and appropriate. And it was great. Uh, people really were in different positions, and mm -hmm. we were able to have a pretty lively argument about mm -hmm. state security and all of those things. So, mm -hmm. trying to get, but it was it was ostensibly anyway about a 1921 novel, not mm -hmm. not about 2017, 2018 U.S. Mm -hmm. That's one way is to sort of encourage students to um, find de debate topics or issues to that can be like. Um, 
like a ventriloquist's dummy for contemporary issues. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you can get your philosophical perspective fleshed out and articulated without necessarily worrying that the person you are really fond of that lives down the hall is never going to speak mm -hmm. to you again. Right, right. But I also think as a campus, we need to remember that um, certain kinds of disagreements are healthy and are part of our democracy and, mm -hmm. and that... Um, it's really easy. I know I said this to you guys last year that it's really easy to stay in your silo and to just never hear anybody disagree with you. Mm -hmm. I think that's actually been a really destructive force in our contemporary political world. Mm -hmm. People who don't even believe the same facts mm -hmm. across the frontiers of political divide. Um, so we need to be, we have to be challenging each other more. And I'm, mm -hmm. so I'm trying to on that as well um one of the things that i think is really important is to just up at the front of a discussion say and this is something i got from that pedagogy workshop mm -hmm. uh, that i mentioned to you by email um what why what's so scary why can we not talk about say for example race or mm -hmm. political divisions what is at risk if we're talking about it and you know i have asked that question in classes over the years and what i'll often get from students well, what did i say the wrong thing what if I sound racist or what if I sound sexist or what if people misunderstand me or mm -hmm. I don't have the right vocabulary? Mm -hmm. So I'm teaching a class right now and it's called Gender, Race and Citizenship in mm -hmm. the Atlantic World. And and I, this is also the case when I teach a class on the Haitian Revolution, I'm mm -hmm. talking about race a lot. Mm -hmm. What are the right words to use? Mm -hmm. Historically, why do we not use the word mulatto or colored people anymore in the United States? And how do we handle it when we're reading sources that are from contexts in which Negro rather than black is being used to mm -hmm. describe somebody? So we have to be, we have to ask our questions and we have to create a safe space where people can really mm -hmm. Uh, mm -hmm. say, ask the stupid question or yeah. the possibly ill-informed question. Mm -hmm. Is it worth it to have those types of difficult conversations outside of the classroom as well, do you think? I, I think we have to. And I, I'm i I'm worried about the fact that I don't know we're doing that that much on this campus. Um, the, yeah, people seem to be kind of segmented out into their zones, mm -hmm. into their comfort, comfort groups. Mm -hmm. um, and our, current political climate is making that worse because um, free the idea of free speech has become so politicized that mm -hmm. you know the, the greatest proponents of free speech have always been the most radical and progressive people but in our climate there's this perception this spin that that um, only conservatives are talking about free speech issues mm -hmm. it's reinforcing this political divide mm -hmm. one of the questions you wrote me was um, uh, should we just avoid disagreeing with people to preserve relationships? Hmm. And I love that question because I think that it's an instinctive thing for all of us to do. Oh, just just kind of nod or step sidestep it because mm -hmm. it's not worth getting into it. Mm -hmm. um, but I I think we do that at our peril. I think our friendships and our relationships get better if we really dig into differences. Mm -hmm. um, and it's often in those most trusting relationships where we're most afraid to do that, mm -hmm. that we can actually be most open and listen and hear mm -hmm. and and change our minds even. Mm -hmm. um, but it does take a certain set of tools <laughs> mm -hmm. to be able to do it. Yeah. How would you recommend 
maybe maybe a student who doesn't usually have these types of conversations and wants to more like is is there anything they should should do or certain people they should approach it with i don't know like how i don't you know <laughs> i mean i can i would just um i mean i have some basic tools right mm -hmm. um asking questions and respectful listening um is really important you can't just immediately go to labels with people like, oh, I'm going to go talk to my Trump supporting friend or my communist friend or my Bernie Sanders supporting friend or mm -hmm. my whatever, you know, we were, we're all walking around with labels on and the labels are, they're more definitive than they've ever been. Um, so I think you have to start by, you know, asking, well, what, what do you think about the current, mm -hmm. about this issue? What's, what do you think is going well or not going well? Mm -hmm. um, I think trying to well okay let's say go back to what i said about what the way i like to teach mm -hmm. reading old books novels mm -hmm. philosophers whatever mm -hmm. um and trying to understand what what are the things that an argument rests on what kinds of what were the limits of what was imaginable mm -hmm. we have to do exactly the same thing with each other mm -hmm. i i'm you know i'm i'm about the same age as most of my students parents so your frames of reference, your frame of reference is different from mine. Mm -hmm. The 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 um, the markers historically that are meaningful are really different. Uh, and so I think in conversation we need to and we've you know you have classmates you're from Davis I think right but we have classmates from Idaho and mm -hmm. New York and New Mexico mm -hmm. and Oregon. Uh, what like, what are the issues that they grew up with? What was locally really important to them? Mm -hmm. um, homelessness is a huge issue in Northern California. Mm -hmm. Maybe it isn't in other parts of the country. Mm -hmm. I, you know, there are a variety of ways that we can think about this. The immigration, the immigrant experience and who shows up in your community through immigration is radically mm -hmm. different in different parts of this country. So mm -hmm. I think asking of our friends the same kinds of questions we ask of texts, mm -hmm. like what? Why is this issue? Why do you understand it this way? What mm -hmm. What are the forces that have shaped your perspective? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. One One reason that sometimes I think I'm studying uh, business as opposed to maybe political science is that um, it seems like there's there are more tangible steps that can be taken in business. Almost, mm -hmm. so I'm wondering what you think about the value of having all these conversations, which can seemingly take a lot of like energy and care versus really like diving into maybe one issue and, and what is like, what is the difference between action and discussion and how are they both important? Yeah. yeah. Um, I think, well, let me say, I think without enough discussion, action is unreflective and mm -hmm. it's knee jerk and it, it usually is, um, pursuing an agenda that's been set out for you rather than your own agenda. Um, so discussion, even if it's potentially heated or conflicted, helps you refine your own worldview and your own perspective. And I mean, that's a bedrock value to me of the liberal arts education, that you, you have to encounter texts and professors and classmates that you disagree with. Mm -hmm. And the only way you know that you disagree with them is by having the argument and having to figure out, well, you know, and you write an essay, you have a thesis statement, that's the beginning of an argument that you and I might be having about something, I don't know what. And then, you know, in order to make your case, you have to marshal the evidence. 
um, that is an active, constructive intellectual experience that you can't you can't get from just you know following a business plan. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not trying yeah, to, no, yeah, to yeah. dump on business, but <laughs> but I th- I just think that the the discussion dictates action; it necessarily precedes it. Mm-hmm. You can't mm-hmm. act without a point. It's like writing a paper mm-hmm. without a thesis statement, which I'm sure you know is really hard, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. You just kind of agglomerate a bunch of stuff together. Mm-hmm. Are there any lessons from the periods in history that you study that you think can be applied to modern times? Um, I really stuck with that question for a little while. So one thing um, of the periods in history that I study mm-hmm. is that human beings build hierarchies and they set boundaries around their communities. Mm-hmm. We're constantly constructing us versus them in new ways. And we deconstruct them all those categories as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes really productively and wonderfully, right? Um, the shifts in the last 20 years around attitudes about sexuality, LGBTQ, et cetera, really huge, huge, amazing uh, and important. But I feel like just as in the past when Okay, so there's an example from a class that I'm teaching right now. Mm-hmm. The middle of the 19th century is a time when slave emancipation was a widespread phenomenon in the Western world. Mm-hmm. But basically, as soon as legislation was passed mm-hmm. to, um, to end chattel slavery, you start to see new forms of citizenship policing and limitations mm-hmm. being established. They're in, set in new, through new terms of understanding, but... They keep doing it. And it's the same period when the European powers are expanding as colonial powers all over the world. And again, new kinds of hierarchies. So part one thing is like the song remains the same, right? Mm-hmm. As the French say, plus ça change. The more <laughs> things change, the, the more they stay the same. Um, so that's kind of depressing. Um, but it's also the case that human beings do change, even as much as things are uh like we could see uh, like a stock market mm-hmm. but i'm stealing that directly from a student who's in my cni right now we were talking about whether the world is actually getting better or not today mm-hmm. um you know there's there's progress still there's still like in even you can't you have to look at longer stretches of time to understand long-term change at any given moment you're going to see a lot of horrible things that mm-hmm. human beings are doing to each other and a relative few mm-hmm. good things so that those are like depressing facts, mm-hmm. but also comforting in a certain way that people just do keep at it, keep plugging away mm-hmm. at improving the lot of other people, even in difficult times like we mm-hmm. have right now. Mm-hmm. Are there any people that you've studied that have inspired you? Yeah. Um, so, no, I can't really say. I mean, historians have a kind of dour view on human nature, partly because our heroes almost always disappoint us, you know? Mm. So, but I do think that there's something else that can be gleaned more positive, uh, something more positive that can be gleaned from studying historical figures. And that is the complexity of every human being and the poten- the plasticity, if you know what I mean by that, mm. our, our potential for change um, to, to reorient our thinking in the face of new kinds of evidence or, or arguments. And you do see figures all through the historical past who have changed their minds about certain key things, who have moved out of their comfort zone in one way or another, um, and who have challenged the status quo. 
even though they're still flawed people. Um, and I, I'm sure you, well, I expect you might remember our discussions about Thomas Jefferson, who's a really mm -hmm. interesting figure in this regard, because he was, you know, he wrote the Declaration of Independence. He was an important framework of the Constitution. And while, while President ended the America's involvement in the transatlantic slave trade, but he also died, you know, owning 600 slaves and not emancipating them on his deathbed, which was a practice that was very common in his age. He contributed widely to the um, kind of scientific and intellectual rationalizations for for the enslavement of people of African descent. And it's very hard to see those two together and understand him as um, a kind of hero anymore. Mm -hmm. But we can also look at him and see the places in his writing where as he got older, he he clearly came to recognize the flaws in in the arguments about slavery, to recognize that it was dangerous and uh, unjust, as he says, you know, God, God is just, and we should remember that. And that, and he's a good reminder that um, the conflict between action and words mm. is often very deep and involves our own investments, and we have to mm. examine all those things. So, I think examining human beings in the past and the way they have negotiated moral and and social issues, political issues can help us understand the choices we have to make as individuals. Right. So admire them, not necessarily, but see their humanity and recognize ourselves in it. That's very productive and useful. Yeah. Well, awesome. I'd love to wrap up with a couple shorter questions. Sure, great. So what's, what's one place that you've really loved that you've traveled? Oh, Japan. Hmm. I mean, I've traveled a lot of places, but I love Japan. And part of why I loved it was that I didn't, I don't know any Japanese. Mm -hmm. I don't, can't understand any you know, five words or something, and I can't read anything. And it's this wonderful out-of-body experience to not be, mm -hmm. have any touch points for the society mm -hmm. you're surrounded by. Mm -hmm. So much of our energy and thought, every moment it goes into decoding and understanding and interpreting and processing all of the sensory input and um, in Japan that so much of that is unavailable that mm -hmm. it was this extremely soothing and relaxing place to be, even though, hmm. I mean, I had no idea what I was, where I was going, what I was doing. <laughs> I just was kind of floating in this other kind of um, context. It was quite, hmm. quite wonderful. If you could send a message to every person in the United States, what would you want to say? Talk to each other. Don't be afraid of the argument. Mm -hmm. uh, what does an ideal Saturday look like oh, for you? A hike, read a novel for a little while. I have. I will recommend a book that I just read really recently that is new. It was quite great, called The Power by Naomi Alderman, mm -hmm. which is a kind of speculative fiction. So in the novel, all the teenage girls wake up one day with this physical power has grown in them as a result mm -hmm. of environmental pollutants that allows them to channel electricity through their hands. And mm -hmm. have you heard about this book? Yeah. Well, it ultimately, as you might imagine, upends the power structure of the society. <laughs> it's quite great. And it's very thought provoking because it, it takes us out of the, the assertion that, you know, women are inherently good and men are the power brokers in the society mm -hmm. and asks, you know, what is the role of structural power in um, in dictating our moral behavior and mm. political behavior. So mm. 
that that is that would so I've been reading that mm-hmm. and then cooking dinner I really am, I like to cook a lot mm-hmm. hang out with my dog my uh, do you have any favorite things to cook or meals uh spinach well? souffle is a big mm-hmm. big favorite in our house mm-hmm. yeah. yeah if you couldn't be a history professor anymore and you had to just start a totally different oh. job what what new thing would you want to try if you could just jump into it I it is a really good question and one I have actually struggled with quite mm. a lot. I would not be a teacher, even though I love teaching. Right. But I, um, maybe, maybe, uh, like, in kind of not like informed journalism. You know, mm. long mm-hmm. format journalism mm. that would still use research skills, but not yeah. be as embed deeply embedded in some obscure corner of the past. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for yeah. doing this conversation. I that was really it. fun. Thank you so much for listening to the show today. You can subscribe to Voices of Santa Clara on the iTunes podcast app. You can visit VoicesOfSantaClara.com for interview transcripts, and you can like the Facebook page. Special thanks to Miles Elliott for the music. Thank you for listening, and have a nice day. Thank you.